Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey there, everyone from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Guy Marzarati in this week for Scott Schaefer. And today we're talking with a state senator who has shown no aversion to controversy in his time in both the state capitol and San Francisco City Hall. That's right. Scott Weiner has always been an outsider in some ways, and he's been more than willing to take on tough issues as a lawmaker, including one of those third rails of California politics, one you like covering, Guy. That would be housing. Yes, yes. <laughs> hot third rail. Definitely. Well, we'll get to that conversation in a minute. I think he's got to be the tallest lawmaker in Sacramento, yeah? Yeah, it was definitely, uh, it's one of those things you walk in the studio and all the you know engineers and everyone around are all looking like, who is this six foot seven person that we're going to have to fit through this doorway and, and thin, get in he's here? So, yeah. like, he's so wide. Um, All right. Well, first, let's talk about some other politicians. Uh, President Trump, for one. We have seen this week, gosh, a lot of back and forth between Republicans and Democrats over what something that, you know, I think Trump really made a centerpiece of his 16 campaign. And we can see him shaping up in 2020, which is really around identity politics, immigration, race in general. Um, This started this week with these tweets, uh, him aiming at four freshman women of color in Congress, basically telling them that if they don't like the United States, they should go back where they came from, which I'm pretty sure is something like every kid has said in some way. In a, like it's you know what that right. means, it's the, right? I mean, it's the old playbook. And I would say I think, uh, you know, I know we want to talk about this from the perspective of Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker from San Francisco. And the difficulty that she's actually had with these four congresswomen in the past, kind of presenting a unified uh, Democratic House. But when Trump comes in with these in- incredibly ugly attacks, there's the unifier right there. Oh, yeah. I mean, Pelosi went from having this caucus meeting where she was essentially, without naming these four members, admonishing them to, you know, keep their fights within in the caucus um, and a lot of divisions, a lot of questions over whether Democrats were going to keep fighting to them all united behind what ended up being a vote on the House floor on Wednesday, essentially um, not censuring Trump, but, you know, taking them to task. These, yeah, these comments are racist. I think what then becomes difficult is what to do about it. And that's where we saw some division. Right after that vote, they took a vote uh, on impeachment, not regarding collusion or obstruction of justice, but on whether these uh, attacks that Trump did was unpresidential, unfit for office. Um, And there you saw a split, you know, 20 uh, House Democrats from California saying that uh, this measure should go ahead. It was ultimately defeated. 
what I found interesting was focusing on those new freshman Democrats in swing districts in California. Only one, Mike Levin from San Diego, wanted this uh, impeachment move to go forward. I think those are the members who this is the toughest vote for them, whether well, it's on whether it's on obstruction or right. anything. Regarding I mean, I do think that if it came after a long investigation, which is ongoing in these committees, and so we will this was not the last we'll hear about right. an impeachment push, that it might be an easier vote. But it does speak. I mean, they are sort of the canaries in the coal mine when it comes to these swing districts and what these members are thinking about when they look towards 2020, not just around beating Trump, but in retaining their seats. Um, one person, of course, we should mention, since he's from California, the Re- Republican minority leader, Kevin McCarthy. Um, he was not ready to go after the president. He did say that the chance at the rally on Wednesday night saying center back were inappropriate, um, but he said that it's not fair to blame Trump for that. Um, and so, you know, I do think that this is going to be a big part of the 2020 race, and uh, we want to talk a little bit about that because we're of seeing new polling. Um, It's really looking like this is boiling down to a four-way race at this point. Kamala Harris, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Joe Biden are leading in various sort of different, uh, you know, settings, depending on which state you're in. Those four are generally in the top four, followed by Pete Buttigieg, who's a fundraising well. Yeah, I mean, but interesting looking at, so we have these new polls out in California, which has that top four that you mentioned. Nationally, Buttigieg is up there in a kind of top five, but despite what also has come out recently, incredible fundraising numbers for Buttigieg in California. In the second quarter of the year, uh, he, you know, from April to June, outraised Kamala Harris in the Golden State, which is incredible given the infrastructure that she has here. But that's not translating to polls. Right. And both of these polls, Buttigieg is at either 3% or 8%. So, I, and we should mention Harris still overall in California has has outraised everyone. She right. is doing very well here, and I mean. It, it, I think, speaks to, in some ways, this question of the donor class versus the base and whether people think electability is the same thing or what it, what people get excited about. Um, I also think it's probably true that a lot of donors are spreading their money around because they want to see this debate play out and they're not sure who the best candidate is. But I will say, like, coming out of that debate, Harris needed a bump and she did get it in the polls. I mean, interesting. Yeah, because I mean, that's what I initially thought of was this is really just an issue of timing. The, the fundraising numbers were reported just after the debate, whereas both of these polls reflect what happened in the debate. Mm -hmm. But I think you make a good point about the the division within Democrats of the people who, you know, on the ground, the people who vote uh, and the people who are giving money in these campaigns, which, as you say, they might be at this point still kind of spreading it around. Yeah, I think it's going to be fascinating to see how that translates for Harris into performance in the early states, whether she can keep this up and if she needs momentum by winning one of those four early states before going into Super Tuesday or not. We're We're going to have to see more debates in a few weeks. All right, we're going to take a short break now. And when we come back, we'll be joined by State Senator Scott Wiener. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. 
special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here this week with Guy Marzarati, and we are excited to welcome San Francisco State Senator Scott Wiener to the breakdown. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. So, okay, we're going to get into like your whole life and everything, but in reading about you, we learned that your first big political skirmish came before your high school graduation. It was about an invocation. Well, Can we talk about that? My, my first. <laughs> political skirmish was in fourth grade when I ran for class treasurer and lost. Oh, no. So that was the first one. What and was then the I, slogan? Oh, God, I don't remember. <laughs> Why'd you lose? Because um, I was a dork. <laughs> that's, so a big, that's a big factor. Yeah, so I think that's a, that's a key factor. We're like yeah. 30 seconds in. <laughs> I feel like that actually becomes uh, an asset later in life, probably. Yeah, just like um, Wiener was not a fun name as a kid, but then when you're running for office, it was a huge asset. Yeah. If people laugh about your name, they're going to remember it. Totally. Okay, so you ran for office, you lost, but do, but you still had the bug and after that fourth grade um, I think I licked my wounds for a while, and then I took me a while to get back involved. But yeah, and um, when I was in 11th grade, I think it was, um, the senior graduation happened, and they this is in suburban southern New Jersey. It was like a farm town that had become a suburb, and uh, it was a super religious Christian invocation, and there was some, I was one of two Jewish kids in my class and uh, there was a lot of or some consternation about it so they convened like a task force and I got on it I don't even remember why or how I guess they had to have a Jewish kid on <laughs> it token Jew yeah. on the- <laughs> and uh, it was it was horrible like the the sort of religious right came out and like uh, kids or adults um, adults okay. wow. and sort of the you know telling us that we were blasphemers and uh, it was it was really ugly. So it was basically like a preclude to land use hearings in San Francisco. <laughs> <There you laughs> it go. helped get me prepared. <laughs> yeah. So how did your how did your family? I mean, what is that Gloucester County? How did your family end up there? Like he's an East Coaster, if you can't tell. Yeah. yeah. So um, we my family immigrated over in the early 1900s from Russia, Romania, Lithuania. Ended up in Philadelphia. Those are your grandparents. My uh, great grandparents mm-hmm. and grandparents. Uh, and my, so my parents were both uh, raised in Philadelphia and I was born in Philadelphia. And then when I was one, my father, um, uh, had just become an optometrist, uh, and he, uh, wanted to go somewhere to like a growing town that right, where, there wasn't, where there wasn't yeah. an optometrist. And so we identified, he had came, moved to this town about 20 minutes outside of Philadelphia, uh, and, uh, call, it was called Turnersville in Gloucester County. Uh, the depopulated part of the state. Do you think they, I mean, they must have had a sense there that you guys would be sort of unique in being Jewish um, in a place like that. Was that, do you think that's something they thought about or worried about? Um, I think that they were aware of it. And actually when we arrived, it it was, um, uh, we moved into like a development that was sort of small um, and growing. Uh, And our neighbors a few doors down when we met them, they, I was three at the time when we moved into that particular uh, development. Uh, our neighbors, when they met us, I was at three, I don't remember this, right, but my but parents told me, uh, that they asked us, they, they said, wait, you're Jewish? Why don't you have horns? 
not as a joke. Uh, and so that you was- You can't see our faces, but our yeah, eyes are very yeah. wide right that now. That was the level of education. And, and then when I was in sixth grade, uh, our social studies book, it was about um, Greek and Roman history. Uh, and there was a chapter about how the Jews had begged the Romans to kill Jesus. And I, I do remember that. I remember telling my parents, and they flipped out. And my rabbi actually came in to meet with the principal, and the book was pulled. But then two years later, when my sister was in sixth grade, she had the same book again. So, so. you chose to go to uh, Duke University uh, for college. I think that's where you came out. Is that right? Yes. So, was, I mean, what were you looking for both in, in college, and what was that experience like? Because Duke is, pretty, itself is kind of conservative. I think when I applied to college, I, I, it came down to uh, the three colleges I was looking at the most were Duke, Columbia, and University of Chicago. And Columbia and University of Chicago have reputations of being super, like, studious, focused on your study school. And Duke, it's a great university, but also with a real social uh, component. Uh, and no one understood why I chose uh, Right. It kind of seems like you might go to one of the big cities and well, the more studious environment. Well, also in New Jersey, the idea that you would go to the South to go to school right. was yeah. horrifying to people. And um, and, and no one under- and I didn't understand that. But I think in retrospect, it was because I, uh, I think I needed a more social environment. And Duke helped make me a little more of an extrovert. I'm an introvert by nature. Uh, and, and so I think intuitively I knew that that's where I needed uh, to go. And it was a little bit more of a conservative uh, environment. Uh, but, there, you know, we had, we had our critical mass of, of lefties there. How was coming out, like, in college at that time? I mean, it sounds like your family was pretty accepting. But, like, was it something you confided in your friends first there? Did you have a community? Um, well, I um, started to come out at the beginning of junior year. Uh, and it was right when we got back uh, to junior year. My sister also went to Duke. She was two years behind me. Um, um, I would say she was a copycat, but she would dispute that. Um, That's cool, though. That's cool that you guys shared that. Yeah. No, it was was terrific. Um, And and so I still remember it was like, the first or second day back, junior year, she was. It was her freshman year, and we were sitting in a room together. And I, you know, and she was the first person I I told. Uh, I didn't tell my parents until the following year. It still took a lot for me to be able to tell them. But I, so I told her, and then I told a couple of my close friends. And for anyone who's come out as LGBT, it's like it's really scary at the beginning, and then it becomes addictive. The more people you tell, the more people you want to tell. Uh, it's like a snowball effect. And so I was in a fraternity, um, and uh, I thought to myself, I can never tell my fraternity brothers. I was the treasurer of my fraternity, and I was going to run for president a few months later. I'm like, I can't tell them ever because then I can't be president. And then uh, 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 because that sort of addictive part about wanting to tell more people, um, after like a month, I'm like, okay, I have to tell them. I have to tell them I'm gay. That means I can't be president, but I'll, I'll deal with that. And so at the end of our Sunday night weekly meetings, we would have all gather in a circle and people could say whatever was on their mind or whatever they wanted to say about anything. And so I came out to them as a group. Um, and after the meeting, they all came up and um, hugged me and everyone was just fantastic. And wow. two months later, they elected me president. So, Oh my gosh, that's yeah. like such a lovely story. Yeah. I'm getting chills right now. Um, wow. So what a different experience than like 
being Jewish where you grew up, right? Yeah. To have that acceptance. And yeah. I'm wondering, so from there you went on to Harvard Law School. I'm wondering, like, did it make it easier to go into that? I mean, a shark tank like that where it's a place full of very ambitious people to go in there kind of with the greater sense of yourself, you know, publicly. I think I think so. And I had also in between, I lived abroad in South America. Um, and that when I was in South America was the first time, even though I was out uh, at, in my junior, senior year, I was still in a fraternity. It was like I was the out guy who it was still a very, you know, straight existence in many ways. And there, there weren't that many um, LGBT people there. Uh, and then I, when I lived in, in Chile, it was my first time when I was like, okay, I'm going to be gay now. Oh, really? And that's when I started like really going out and had a whole gay social network and uh, and all that. And yeah, and then in, that didn't uh, feel like dangerous there at all. Um, it was interesting. It was just a few years after Pinochet mm-hmm. left, and it was the transition government. Uh, and it was actually challenging. It was a very Catholic government. Uh, and um, there was like one time when I was out, um, probably later than I would ever go out now, in the middle of the night dancing at, a, at one of the gay nightclubs, and the um, the police came in, the carabineros, and they rounded all of us up on the dance floor. And I wasn't sure what was going to happen, but after like 30 minutes, they just left. So it was like just <laughs> a, a, a harassment just to, thing. Yeah, mess with everybody. Yeah. Um, but um, in starting law school, it, it was also an interesting time because my class of, uh, it was like 500 or so people, there were like over 20 of us who wow. were out. It was like the most apparently of out LGBT uh, students ever that people could remember in a class at Harvard Law School. And we were super active. We were super activist. It was, um, um, it was, it was, it was great. Uh, so it was just a different phase. It really is what started my, my LGBT activism. A reminder, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Guy Marzarati today, and we are talking to California State Senator Scott Weiner. So you worked in, you were a lawyer for a while, you worked in litigation, and then you were in the city attorney's office. Well, I I did want to ask, you know, we printed out these photos. I'm going to get you to react to these. Oh, I forgot about that. We've got to show them these photos. So Uh this must be from the Kamala Harris's re-election for district attorney. It's a. She's given a speech at yeah. some kind of event. She's got public <clears throat> officials behind her, all in suit and ties, except for you. I rocking, <laughs> rocking the sweatshirt parka leisure combo. Suit, leisure oh, suit. I think like, there was some story behind this. Uh, that's it's horrible. It's really bad. It's a terrible outfit. I don't know what I was thinking. I, I Did actually. She care? What? Did she care? Not here, but I actually have a story. Um, this would have been around. This I, I think this was 2007 when she was up for re-election. This is when I was chair of the Democratic Party from 06 okay. to 08. So before Board of States. And around this time, um, there was a an endorsement vote at the Harvey Milk LGBT Democratic Club at the Women's Building. And so it would have been like on a Tuesday night. And it might it was actually probably an endorsement vote for her re-election. And so I came to vote, but I um, was going to the gym afterwards. So I came in my gym clothes just to show up and vote. And it's a grassroots Democratic right, Club, right? And she was there, too, to vote. And Kamala walked up to me and just did one of these, like, head-to-toe looks. And she points her finger at me. 
and she says, you need to look the part. And she turns around <laughs> and walks away. Cold-blooded. <laughs> and so, yeah, it was. But I remember that. That is permanently in my head. And so whenever I'm like, okay, what? how should I dress? Well, like he just showed up to a radio interview in the suit and tie. I know, in so. a suit and tie. Because I always, what would Kamala say? Um, and then you ran for the Board of Supervisors. I covered you. Full disclosure. I was at the Chronic- San Francisco Chronicles Bureau when you were elected. And... I mean, one thing that's always struck me covering you is that you, I would say, can be principled to a fault, right? Like you have never hesitated to take on allies if you felt like it was necessary. I remember in particular, like watching you take on AT&T over those big, ugly boxes that they were putting on the streets. And, you know, as somebody who they're a big political player, right? Like a lot of politicians didn't want to make them mad. Um, I just wonder, like, do you feel like everything we've talked about so far in terms of your upbringing and the times in your life when you were different kind of made like situated you where you have been politically in that way that you're I don't know I would say a little fearless on that regard um well I have my fears too so (laughs) (laughs) it can be politics is scary sometimes you know I guess my view of it is um I mean I'm not gonna sit here and say oh I have no ego I don't care if I'm an elected office we all have you know our you egos to, and our fears run, yeah. and everything else. Um, but I also know that, especially in the era of term limits, uh, we have a shelf life. And um, what I don't want is to go through public office, whether it's for supervisors or the Senate, and then you're done. And then you're like, wait, what have I done? Mm-hmm. And if you're not willing to um, disagree at times with even allies or uh, take on fights that you're likely to lose, but maybe you'll win, uh, or f- you know, figure out what the issues are that really matter and, and break some glass, even if it makes people angry at you and they protest your house, which I've had my house protested, uh, it, you know, then it's, it's sort of like, what are you, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. And, and, and so that's why I've been um, willing to, to do that. And you can't be a purist, and I, I don't think I am a purist there everything in politics is a lot of negotiation and compromise if you're going to get anything done uh, but you have to you have to stand for something and, and and that's to me like half the battle and I'm wondering you know when you talk about era of term limits really about hitting the ground running uh, and when you got to Sacramento in the legislature to the state Senate I mean how much do you think the experience you had on the board of Supervisors helped you kind of from day I mean I can just imagine the kind of media exposure you get in San Francisco compared to someone who might be coming to the legislature from a school board or somewhere else in the state? Like, how did that help you on day one? Well, uh, specific to that, San Francisco, there's a national and an international obsession with San Francisco. And so I didn't realize, realize this as a new supervisor, that you, as, as a member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, you can get, uh, you get, Covered. Your time profiles yeah, about you, your nudity legislation, yes. for example. You, you're covered <laughs> in all sorts of ways. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and and so representing San Francisco at the state level or the national level, even you you just get a degree of exposure because people are obsessed with San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And especially during uh, during the six years I was on the board of supervisors, with we were ground zero for the for the tech all the tech fights, the mm-hmm. the tech shuttle fights, the Airbnb fights, the um, the all and all the housing um, uh, problems that we were experiencing and everything was f- focused on San Francisco in some ways because we were like a harbinger about what was going to happen in other cities and, and, and so we got 
just enormous amounts of, of focus. And, you know, going to the Senate, it's it's been a, a similar situation when you're from San Francisco. Um, you know, there's just an obsession with our city. I was just going to say, is that something you talk to other members about? I mean, having gone through those things where people are protesting outside of your house or yelling at you at a meeting, like, can you can you convey that to say, look, you may feel like the world is ending with the kind of feedback you're getting on this vote, but I promise you, it's you know they're going to be on to something else in a week. Well, I uh, so uh, it's not a coincidence that San Francisco produces elected officials like Gavin Newsom and Kamala Harris and Nancy Pelosi and Jackie Speer and Phil Burton and Willie Brown and so on and so on and so Jack. You know, it's just right. it's extraordinary, uh, and it's such intense politics here. Uh, that if you can succeed here, you know, you have a certain skill set. And I, you know, I, I think my house was protested probably half a dozen times when I was in the Board of Supervisors, which is embarrassing with your neighbors. Right. People well, and are, you live in a condo, too. So yeah, I know. Like, it's really a lot of neighbors. I felt bad for them. Um, and, uh, and just the intensity of the politics to do anything here is really hard. Uh, and and I, I think not everyone has had the experience of being scream that at a town hall meeting or but I have plenty of colleagues who have so there are some I have colleagues who have amazing political skills and have really gone through fire as well I mean let's talk about like the housing legislation because I think that's been what what you've gotten the most attention for statewide in the last year um, so you you introduced a bill two years ago and then it failed and, and you tried it again this year and it didn't go forward um, essentially to try to make uh, t- d- denser development around transit hubs, right? And this is something that at the beginning really seemed to make everyone mad. Like the tenant groups and the sort of lefties were mad because they felt like this would lead to gentrification and displacement. Uh, Local cities are mad because they don't want to be told what to do. NIMBYs don't want more housing. Um, I I guess to start with, like, did you feel like you did the work on the front end both years to, to try to talk to the stakeholders and do that, like, consensus building that we love to talk about in San Francisco? Yeah, so it's always a, f- of a fine line. And there's a huge pressure in politics, and particularly in the legislature, um, to uh, to try to have no opposition, to try to get to some sort of consensus. And, and what that means is that your bill can be whittled down to nothing. Right. And, you say you have the bill, but you don't really get done what you want. Right. Or I mean, and it's not always a bad thing. Sometimes you you know there are issues where you do one step at a time, yeah, and it may right. take you five years to get there. And that's I'm not criticizing that uh, at all. But it can also mean that you that you end up accomplishing with that bill very little, mm-hmm. uh, and so you it's always a balance. And there are there's legislation that I do that I author where by the time we introduce it, we already have everything buttoned down, um, or you've taken a year to to do the groundwork. And and for certain issues, it makes all the sense in the world to do that. When you're talking about something like the bills that we've done around zoning reform, um, I, though when we introduced the first version of it. Um, SB 827 in January of 2018, there was no way that we could have done the groundwork to put together the perfect coalition and have a consensus. That was essentially uh, a, a 
more or less, it's just a brand new idea for the legislature. It's kind of a shot across the bow a little yeah, bit, Yeah, and, right? and so that was the kind of bill where I, I think that wouldn't have been the right approach. So you knew coming in that that was probably going to fail that first year? I knew that it was going to be hard in the first or maybe even the second year to, to, to get it done. And for that, that's the kind of bill where you put out the idea that you want. You get the public discourse going. Maybe you pass it in your first year. Probably not. Uh, but uh, I, I would not have. Yeah, of course, there are things I look back and say I should have done this out or the other thing different. Nothing's perfect, um, but I think we I think we did launch it in the in the right way. And if you look at what happened, we you know we we fell on our faces the first year, but we got the dialogue going and got people talking about it. And then in year two, uh, you know, we got it out of two different policy committees and almost unanimous bipartisan votes. Had it been allowed to go to the Senate floor, I believe we would have passed it off the Senate floor. Um, and so we, we, we've, I think, been able to move the dial on this particular issue. Uh, and I think for this issue, that was the correct way to do it. But then what's the kind of timeline going forward? I mean, this is now it's become kind of we're moving the football a little bit each year. Next year is an election year. There is a earlier primary than usual. At what point do you say, OK, maybe this is something that we take to a ballot in some form or kind of take out? Or do you think that there really is like an incremental path in the legislature that you see this getting done? No, I think we can pass this bill in a robust way. It's going to come up in January, and we're going to work hard to move it through the Senate uh, in in January. Uh, and, and I think, you know, doing something like this and getting it done in the third year, that, that's okay. That's not, that's not an uncommon thing. So I'm cautiously optimistic uh, that we're going to be able to move it forward. We'll have to make some compromises, and that's fine. Uh, but we can get it done in a robust way. All right. We are running out of time. Final question. What's your favorite yoga pose? I understand you're into yoga. Uh, I am into yoga. What is my, oh God, what's my favorite yoga pose? It doesn't have to be something you're good at, as we've learned from yoga, right? Like Yeah. I'm really like, I don't do like headstands or handstands. I think they're really impressive, but I'm not, uh, uh, that's not my thing. Uh, I'm pretty basic. I think warrior two. All right. Pose. I like that one. Yeah. Uh, State Senator Scott Weiner, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. And that'll do it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. We should mention this week was produced by the talented Guy Marzarati, who's doing double duty as host. You can blame me twice. Our engineers are Katie McMurrin and Seal Muller. Our leadership team includes Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Guy Marzarati. You can follow me on Twitter at Guy Marzarati. That's right. Scott Schaefer won't be back for a couple weeks. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at M Lagos. That's a wrap for this week's political breakdown from KQED. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love 
while also getting access to cool events, behind the scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support.